welcome to the AOL podcast. Let's dive right into this week's message. Glad y'all are here. All right, y'all ready for session two? Okay, glad y'all are here. Um, well, let's just open with a word of prayer as we get prepared to get into Revelation again. Well, Father, we just come before you tonight. We thank you, Father, for the for the desire in the hearts of everyone here tonight, Father, to hear from your word. Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to us, guide us, lead us into all truth. Show us the way. Open up our eyes of understanding and our ears of understanding that we might hear what you have to speak to us, Father, that we might have ears to hear the words of God. And so, Father, I just pray that we, we will be blessed. Your word's already guaranteed that, that we'll be blessed for uh, look, reading the word, hearing the word, and doing the things according to your word. So, Father, we thank you for that blessing ahead of time. We thank you, Father, that you hear our prayers. We thank you that you're here in your presence in full strength. And we thank you, Father, that your word will change our lives forevermore. So we bless your name as we study this word. I pray, Father, that we do it with uh, integrity, that we do it with truth, and that we do it according to your perfect will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's do our declaration. Maybe I won't mess it up this time, okay? Ready? We get your Bible up. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. And can I, I can have what it says I can have. We are about to be taught from the everlasting, incorruptible Word of God, and I will never be the same again. Amen and amen. Say to your neighbor, I'm never going to be the same again, right? You can't be under the Word of God and not be changed, right? Well, praise God for everybody. We've got a good long lesson tonight, so I'm going to jump right into it. Um, that's, this is, uh, so one of the things I want to say tonight, I, I, on your sheet that you have right there, there's a whole section of Scripture, uh, the whole uh, first uh, chapter of Revelation. We're not going to read that to start with, but I wanted you to have that available to you because uh, we're probably going to do some flashbacks or some rabbit trails back to that uh, through some of the lessons so you'll have it to refer to so we won't have to uh, search through the screen or, or whatever like that. So this uh, lesson two, it's all about Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about. Now, if you skip down on, on your first page there, you'll see the highlighted portion right there. This is the thing to keep in mind as we study this word. Always, the main rule of thumb when we're studying the book of Revelation is the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And who is the main thing? What is the main thing? Jesus. Jesus is the main thing. So let's start into this, and I will uh, we'll make commentary as we go, but uh, I hope you got something out of the first lesson, and we'll, we'll get more out of this. And then as we progress, uh, we're, we're going to have... Um, we're going to, we'll do this one, we'll do, and then we'll start in lesson, or in uh, chapter two. This will cover, should cover the most of uh, chapter one out of the book of Revelation, and then we'll get into chapter two, which will be the churches, and that'll be very interesting also. Okay, we'll start with, the, with this. The primary subject of the book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. In the Gospels, you see him humble as he subjected himself to the enemies of the earth and died on the cross. But we discover a completely different Jesus Christ in Revelation. When the scene moves to heaven, 
we see him in glory, in command of everything that takes place. He fills the horizon of the total word of God. Keep this in mind as we study Revelation. That's why we say the main thing is, the, is that the main thing remain the main thing. Right? The Bible is the whole, as a whole tells us what Jesus has done and what he is doing and what he will do. This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. He is the lamb at the center around which everything else is drawn. He is the foundation on which everything, is, everything lasting is built. He is the nail on which everything hangs. He is the object to which everything points. He is the spring from which all blessing proceeds. The lamb is the light, the glory, the life, the Lord of heaven and earth, the source from which all fullness of joy is known. We cannot go far in the study of Revelation without seeing the Lamb. Like direction along the, uh, the road, uh, like direction post along the road to remind us that he who did by himself purge our sins is now highly exalted and that to him every knee must bow and every tongue confess. We, we, Y'all should have that one almost memorized. It's in Philippians 2, 9, 11. Every... One day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So hallelujah, for the Lamb is going to reign upon this earth. That is God's intention and purpose. Now we're going to look at the Christ of the Revelation. According to the instructions Jesus gives to him, John, the apostle, remember this is given to the John the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, he, John divides the Revelation according to Jesus' role. And we're going to see as we go through this, we're going to see... Uh, scene changes. One time we're going to be on earth, one time we're going to be in heaven. You know, maybe next time it may switch back to earth, but there'll be scene changes as we go through here. So we'll take note of that so you know it because it helps to know the context of the, of the uh, thing that's going on in, in the Bible, in the books of Revelation as we go through them. But so in Revelation 1.18, the Lord Jesus speaks as, glorified, as the glorified Christ. He makes four grand statements about himself. He says, I am he who lives... I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. We'll, get, we'll do more of that. We'll see more of that at the end of this uh, lesson, but we'll, we'll cover that. We want to cover all those things, those declarations he made about himself. And then Jesus gives John this outline. He says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And it's very important that this, we keep this whole thing in, in perspective of what we're seeing here. Write the things which you have seen. John, he says in past tense, he says, referring to John's vision of the glorified Christ in, in heaven in chapter 1. And then he says, write the things which are. In other words, the present tense, as he, as he starts for the second uh, thing there, the present tense referring to uh, Christ's pr present ministry, uh, to the churches, the living Christ is very busy today as head of the church. And then write the things that will take place after this. After the church leaves the earth, the Lord wants us to know what will happen. And that will start in chapter 4. So, And I think that's the thing probably that draws people mostly to uh, Revelation is we've always got to the point of getting through the churches with our messages and always have good messages preached. Our, our pastor did a whole series on the seven churches. So we, you know, we went through that. It wasn't very long ago when he did that. It might, it might have been longer than I thought, but it didn't seem like very long. But anyway, we always get to that point, and then it's from chapter four on. It, that's the that's the section that very seldom gets preached in a lot of churches. 
because there are some hard subjects, and that's the things when we start talking about all the different things that are going to happen in the future. These things described for the future, and we're talking about from chapter 4 on, are not to be pulled into the present. This gives rise to the wild and weird interpretations we hear in our day. Instead, let's follow, follow what John tells us. So in the first division of Revelation, we see the person of, of Christ in his position and glory as the great high priest who is in charge of his church. Although he is still the Lamb of God, his wrath revealed terrifies the earth as his judgment begins on the earth. And one thing we should note, and we'll look at these things right here real quick, but one thing we should note is the tie between Genesis and Revelation. Oh, how, much, how many of you know we call him the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, right? Genesis is the beginning, Revelation is the end. And so the first and last books of the Bible, Genesis presents the beginning and Revelation presents the end. So let's let, take a look at some of the contrast between the two books. In Genesis, the earth was created. In Revelation, the earth passes away. In Genesis was Satan's first rebellion. In Revelation is Satan's last rebellion. In, in uh, Genesis, the sun, moon, and stars were for earth's government. In Revelation, these same heavenly bodies are for earth's judgment. In Genesis, the sun was to govern the day. In Revelation, there is no need for the sun. In Genesis, darkness was called night. In Revelation, there is no night there. And those references to the side there are, are the scriptures you can look in that. But we'll get to it eventually. In Genesis, the waters were called seas. In Revelation, there is no more sea. In Genesis was the presence or the entrance of sin. In Revelation is the exodus of sin. In Genesis, the curse was pronounced. In Revelation, the curse is removed. In Genesis, death entered. In Revelation, there is no more death. In Genesis was the beginning of sorrow and suffering. In Revelation, there will be no more sorrow and no more tears. Remember, God's going to wipe all the tears away. In Genesis was the marriage of the first Adam. In Revelation is the marriage of the last Adam. How many of you want to be a part of that marriage supper of the Lamb, wedding feast of the Lamb? Amen? In Genesis, we saw, and I, I believe everybody that's here tonight will be there. We are, we're all the wedding guests, right? In Genesis, was the, uh, we saw a man city. Uh, we saw a man city, Babylon or Babel, being built. In Revelation, we see man's city, Babylon, destroyed. In God's city, the new Jerusalem brought into view. In Genesis, Satan's doom was pronounced. In Revelation, Satan's doom is executed. Genesis opens the book not only with a global view, but also with a universal view. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now in Revelation, we see that God is going to do what God is going to do with this universe. There's no other book quite like this one. Would you all agree? There is no other book just like the book of Revelation. Jesus tells the church, and behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give everyone according to his word. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. It says in 2220, it says, even so, come, Lord Jesus. That would have been a good place for an amen right there. Y'all ready for him to come? Are you really? Yeah. I mean, you ought to, we ought to be sitting uh, with expectant, like on pins and needles, saying, I'm ready. Let him come. Come on. I don't, you know, we, we might have plans and projects and, and future things going on like that. But, man, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come today. In the Gospels, we meet Jesus as meek humble and dying on a cross. He submitted himself to the enemies of the earth, on the earth. In Revelation, Jesus is in his glory and in absolute control of the universe. He is still the Lamb of God 
but we see the wrath of the Lamb that terrifies the earth. He fills the horizon of the total word of God. That's what we say. It, what, what we said about last week, he's from Genesis to Revelation. He's, if you look and search and seek him, you'll find him in every single book. In our video we showed last week on there, it showed everything that he's, he's identified in every single book of the Bible, and it's all pointing to him. Jesus makes a promise to all who read and hear this book, you will be blessed, he said. And both the reader and hearer are to keep these things which are written in the book. Many are frightened by what they see and hear here. But remember, Jesus says he loves us, so we have no need to be afraid of anything that is to follow. And you know if you're a believer that you believe in the rapture of the church and you believe that we're going to be raptured and, and as we get to it and we see uh, that uh, you know identified and, and uh, uh, interpreted in, in verse 4 as the rapture, and we'll get to that point, then you really don't have anything to worry about after chapter 4. I mean, these are all things that are going to happen on the earth after the church is removed. So what a glorious thing to think about. And as we stated in the last lesson, please note the title of this book is Revelation, singular, not plural. It is the revelation, that is, the uncovering, unveiling, or revelation of Jesus Christ. The Gospels only tell us half the story. Revelation completes it. It takes off the veil so we can see Jesus Christ in his unveiled beauty and power and glory. This book is the opposite of a secret or a mystery. It discloses secrets and uses words, word pictures, and symbols so we can interpret it in the light of the entire Word of God. You know, we talked about this word mystery the last time, but mystery is not knowledge hidden or concealed, but it is truth revealed by divine revelation. Did you know you couldn't have been saved unless the Holy Spirit revealed to you that that was the way, the truth, and the life? You couldn't do it on your own. You had to have that Spirit of God reveal that to you and that was a revelation it was a mystery before the Holy Spirit reveals to you and that's why it's so important for the Holy Spirit to be involved in your salvation because he's the one that's going to reveal to you your need for salvation so that's a mystery until you actually have it revealed by divine revelation it's also the, the main thing the mystery is the main thing of the, of the parable of the sower that we've heard preached so many times uh, and Jesus says to his disciples when they come in and ask him you know Explain to us, what, 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 what are you talking about on the parable of the sower? And he says to him, he says, To you it has been given, been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. And what he's saying right there is, is not everybody's going to receive it, but those that have ears to hear. And so many times we're going to see this uh, throughout, especially to the letters to the churches. Uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And so that's what it means right there. There's, a, there's something being revealed right there. Those that will hear it will hear it because of divine revelation, but those that won't hear it or don't want to hear it, they won't hear it. So, you, you know, you want to be the one that has ears to hear for sure. And when, when will these things happen? Uh, John writes, things which must take or must shortly take place. And we find that in Revelation 1, 1 the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John now this doesn't state a date uh, they will happen but that it that it will happen with absolute certainty and once it begins it will take place in a hurry in a brief period of time so we have the seven years of tribulation that are, that'll happen and that's you know that's what we talked about last week and we'll, we'll uh, get into that more when we talk about uh, Daniel's 70th week and we explain a little bit what what is meant by Daniel's 70th week but we're talking about when it says it'll take place in a hurry things are going to start clicking in seven years you know how you know we look back at things like that and you say 
man, that happened in 2017 or something like that. And you say, man, that wasn't that was six six years ago or whatever like that. But time flies by so fast. If you notice, how I many look at it? We're fast. We're here already in September, three more months of the year, and it's, it's, it's in the books. And so, yeah, when things happen, it'll take place in a hurry. And they'll, I'm sure those people in the last three and a half years of tribulation, they won't be able to get it over fa time and fast enough. But anyway, it'll take place. Some people take that, and, and many times it was probably interpreted, uh, things much, must shortly take place, meaning it's going to happen real soon. In other words, from the time this book was written, well, it's going to happen in the next few, few years from there. But I, it just means that it will take place shortly, means it will take place quickly and in a hurry. The message of this book originated in heaven with God the Father who gave it to his son, Jesus Christ, who gave it to an angel, who gave it to John, who wrote about it, who wrote about what he saw as an eyewitness of the visions. What John saw and heard and sometimes smelled, he tells us in very picturesque language. John first communicated the account of Revelation to the seven churches in Asia. So having been a pastor in this region, John knows these churches. He writes from Patmos, a small Greek island in the Aegean Sea, where he was exiled from 86 to 96 A.D. Uh, as pastor has preached before, he's boiled in oil twice. He's poisoned, and so they finally couldn't kill him, so they exiled him. Uh, it's a lonely, rugged, volcanic, volcanic island where he was given this great vision of revelation. And can I tell you, too, that just tells you another thing about John. He was a rebel. He didn't comply. You'll get that here after a while. But anyway... <laughs> He didn't comply, so he was political. There was some political things about it, so don't say you can't take political from the pulpit, right? Just saying. Just saying. Okay, where was it? John opens in verse 4, with grace, this is in chapter 1, with, with grace to you and peace. The word grace, which is Greek is uh, charis, uh, is a greeting, and then peace uh, shalom is in, is the Hebrew word for that, and and it's not it doesn't say shalom, and it's in of course it's written in Greece. But if you transliterated that word uh, peace from Greek to to Hebrew, it actually it means the same thing shalom, and and uh, I think the Greek word for uh, I wrote it down the Greek word for peace is irene, and so it's Greek for peace, which corresponds to the Hebrew shalom, expressing the idea of peace well-being, restoration, reconciliation with God, and salvation in the fullest sense. So, you know, when the, when the Hebrews, uh, Hebrew, and I'm sure pastor will experience this when he goes to uh, Israel later on, but one of their, their greetings, when you, when you first meet a, a, a Jewish person, they're going to say shalom, peace, and then when you leave, they're going to say shalom, that's peace. So they're going to they're say that every time. That's their, that's their historical greeting or their, their greeting that they, they're wishing that upon you. And when they say shalom, they're wishing uh, peace to you. Peace flows from grace, and grace is the source of all our blessings today. The revelation reveals the grace of God and gives us peace. We don't need to be frightened as we study this book. God's children have his grace and his peace. This grace is also called the Lord Jesus Christ. You all have the Lord Jesus Christ. You have that grace. You've accepted him by grace, by faith, and now you have that peace that passes all understanding. You have the peace, the Prince of Peace, living in your heart. This grace is also from the Lord Jesus Christ. In just two verses, in, uh, so that, that's how he started out, grace to you and peace. And then he says, 
uh, we'll cover some more about that in, in an, another section. But in just two verses, Revelation 5, 1 and 5 and 6, he, we learn seven titles for Jesus as we go through here. There's so much detail in, in Revelation, it's, and it's hard to, you know, you could skip off a lot of this and say, well, I'm just not going to cover that because we've got so much to cover. But these things are so, so important. I hope you, I hope you see these things as we go through here. And, and it says in verse 5, he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So number one, Jesus is the faithful witness, the only trustworthy witness to the facts of this book that are about him. He testifies of himself. When, it, when it's difficult to believe other people, surely we can believe the Lord Jesus. And then number two, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the first to rise from the dead, never to die again, back from the dead in a glorified body. He is the he is the res- that's why it says he is the resurrection and the life because he was the first one to ever be uh, resurrected. Other people have come back from the dead like Lazarus, but that was not a resurrection. That was uh, being raised from the dead. There's a difference. Jesus is the ruler over the kings of the earth, speaking of the time when every knee should bow and every tongue will confess he is Lord. We see that in Philippians 2, 9, and 9 through 11. Therefore God also highly exalted him and give him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow to those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then number four is to him who loved us, emphasizes his constant attitude toward his own. Jesus Christ didn't, didn't love us only when he died on the cross or even before he died on the cross, but he, although he loved us at that time, but he also loves us today, right at, right at this very minute, Jesus loves you. Even if you're a sinner, Jesus loves you. Washed us from our sins in his own blood, and that's number five. Jesus Christ gave his life. And 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 says, Knowing that you were not, not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Number six, and has made us kings and priest unto God and his Father who will rule with him. Now, that's a little different than what it was written before. Uh, it's, this is a King James Version that reads this, and I just want to point something out here uh, in verse 6. And he's, it's, it says right there in this version, the King James Version, my version that I had printed before was the New King James Version. But look at this. It says, And made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Well, I thought God was the Father. That's something, one of those things that gives you a a moment to think about it. To him, it says, unto God and his Father. Did you notice that it reads, unto God and his Father? Why does it read, why doesn't it read, our Father? And in most translations, it does read, our Father. Because God is the Father of Jesus in a unique way. We become sons of God through regeneration, being born from above, by accepting Jesus as Savior. But Christ's eternal position in the Trinity is that of the Son. Remember when we, when we talked about, I don't know if, uh, how many of you went to the, the defending the faith, but we had a lesson on the Trinity. And uh, one of the things about the Trinity is it's, it's the three, talked about the three persons of the Godhead. They're all co-equal in power and position in, in the Trinity. But the God is not the Son. The Son is not God. God is not the Father. Uh, I mean, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. They're all three individual 
uh, persons of the Trinity of the Godhead, but they're co-equal in power and position. And you need to go back and look at that lesson. It's it'll give you more detail. I, I, but anyway, that's Christ will always be the Son of God, but He is also God. To, and number seven, to Him be glory. And, and and as far as that goes, one of the things, if you want to know what uh, translations I looked at, there's there's only about three that actually interprets it like the King James Version. One of them is the Aramaic translation. Another one is the Dewey Rames, Rames or however you say that uh, translation. But most of them use the, the one that the New King James Version says, His Father and God, instead of God and His Father. So anyway, it's just something to ponder as you're thinking and studying and meditating on the Word. Number seven, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Sorry, I don't mean to get on rabbit trails, but sometimes those things... Um, really uh, uh, trigger something in my mind that needs to be, it just needs to be shared, I think, sometimes like that. Anyway, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, emphasizing Jesus' title for eternity. Amen. Jesus Christ is the amen, the subject and object of this book. He is the mover of all events, and all events move toward him. He is the far-off eternal purpose, like we said in Lesson 1, in everything. All the things were made were not were not only made by him, but all things were made for him. This universe exists for him. Let's go back to that one scripture we talked about in lesson one, Colossians one sixteen through seventeen. It says, "For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist consist." Sometimes I think when we're thinking about Jesus and we're and we're talking and and we're reading through the Bible and we see those things, we sometimes we uh, we don't get outside the box. Sometimes we think too many times we think of of Jesus in a one dimension one dimensional way instead of all the different things that he he is. You know, when we think about uh, all the things that happened through him, you know, he was there at creation. He'll be there at at the end and all these things. But anyway. John tells us that one day Jesus Christ will personally and physically come back. When Jesus appears in the clouds, everyone will see him. Now, how that, how's that going to happen? How's everybody going to see them? You know, when when the Bible was written and back in those days, I was probably thinking, how in the world is that going to happen with where everybody will see him? But you know now with the technology that we have, is it possible that everyone in the world could see him at the same time? I believe it is. Now, it could be happening you know, God's God's the God of impossible, and it may happen where we see Him without the uh, the happenstance of technology that will help us. But uh, you know, it's possible now that He could be because we see things. If something happens on the far side of the Earth, we can see it immediately because of the the satellites and things like that that are projected, and within seconds, everyone can see it. And and, we're, and of course, when Jesus earlier took the church out of the world at the at the when Jesus earlier took the church out of the world. At the rapture, he doesn't appear to everyone, nor does he touch down on the earth. So we're talking about two different events here. We're talking about the rapture, and we're also talking about the second coming of Christ. Don't get them, don't get them mixed up or put together. So he doesn't appear to everyone, he does, and, or nor does he touch down on the earth. At the rapture, believe, believers will be caught up to meet him in the air. When Jesus Christ returns to the earth as the king at the end of the tribulation, uh, at the tribulation, he will come to establish his kingdom in the millennium. But, but this time, when everyone sees him, not everyone will be happy. Those who reject him on earth will wail and mourn, and they will beat their breasts in anguish. The world won't want to see him. Verse 7 says, Behold, 
He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Why do you think the tribes of the earth are going to mourn him at that time when they see him that final time? They had their chance. You know, they had their chance before the rapture, and then they had their chance during the tribulation. And if they didn't take, if they didn't accept him as Lord and Savior at that time, it's too late by then because he's coming with uh, all the saints in glory, and that's going to be the final, the final thing right there. So, better better not uh, put your chance off if you haven't accepted him. But nothing will stop the Lord. Nothing will change the plan. What he started, he will finish. Jesus said, "I am Alpha and Omega." These Greek letters are saying, are like saying he's the A and the Z and every letter in between. In the Hebrew alphabet, which is, if you take the first letter, which is Aleph, and Bet, which is the second letter, it's called, but that's where we get our uh, word for alphabet. He is the Aleph, Aleph and the Tov. Jesus Christ is the beginning, and the, and the beginning is already completed. The end is yet to be, but the Omega... The end will complete God's program, and that's what we are discovering in this study. So he is the Word of God, the full revelation and intelligent communication of God. He's the only language God speaks. Jesus Christ, the Son, is the only way to God the Father. Since Jesus is the beginning and the end, he embodies all time and eternity. I want to say a word right quickly. I know this is another rabbit trail, but I think it's important when we're talking about the name. You know, what's the, what's the significance of a name? Um, and it's very significant when you say it. But what's in a name? And the Jewish thought, uh, I, this is from a lesson I taught a few years ago, several years ago, actually it was in 2017, but we were talking when we were doing our study before on this is kind of a sidetrack we took. But in Jewish thought, a name is not just a random combination of sounds or an arbitrary designation, but something that conveys the nature of, and essence of the one named. There's something about your name. There's something about your name that will, will convey that, and it's not just a name. According to Hebrew notions, a name is inseparable from the person who it belongs to. It is something of his essence. Therefore, in the case of God, it is specially sacred. Does reputation go with a good name? And vice versa, right? A bad reputation goes good with, with, with a bad name. But uh, then, so, when he, when he says in verse 4, and if you want to flip back on page 1 and look at verse 4, I don't think I put it up there for this particular session, but when John said, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before God. I, I, the thing I want to say about that, that phrase, him who is and who was and who is to come is uh, is the same as saying uh, the name of God that come from. Uh, you, you, we've heard that interpreted in in um, in I believe it's in uh, Exodus uh, three, when when God said to Moses, or uh, when when Moses said to God, and he was being sent to the children of Israel, and he said, "The God of our fathers has sent me to say," and it was, and they say to me, "What is his name? What shall I say to them?" And God said to Moses, "I am who I am." It's the same thing as saying. That's that word, when you say the, in Greek, it says him who is and who was and who is to come because it's speaking of the eternity of God or the eternality of, of God. And so that word, 
that they spoke, the I am, I am that I am, uh, was was pronounced. It was pronounced, or we we get the word Jehovah, or we get the word Yahweh from that word, which is really mispronounced because the real pronunci- pronunciation, according to uh, Billy Bram in her book uh, of, about Revelation, is it should be. It, it, it's because it's four letters. It's Yod Hey Vav Hey, and and it was so sacred they wouldn't even say it. So in order for them to keep around, keep from saying that, they changed that. They it was so sacred they wouldn't. They didn't even want to even want to get caught in the in saying that name because it was so sacred to him. So they they said it says it name the name. They usually when they said something about God when they were talking about him they would say and the name said or the name is worshipped or the name and they said the name also represents the eternity of God. For it is composed of the letters that spell that word I just said, yod heh vav He was, he is, and he will be. Meaning that God's being is timeless. And so they used that word. And instead of using that word, a lot of times what they would say, instead of saying the word Lord or Yahweh or Jehovah, which that's the way it was actually interpreted later, but they would just say Hashim instead of, of uh, calling him that, or they would use the word Adonai. Adonai or Hashim, you'll never hear, very seldom I believe you'll ever hear a, a Jewish person that's a, a religious Jewish person say Yahweh, or they will usually say, and when they're doing their readings and their, their things in, in, uh, in their uh, uh, services or whatever, they will usually say, or they're speaking about him, they will usually say Hashim, which means the name, or they'll usually say Adonai, which means uh, God Almighty, um, or, or, or to them that. But anyway, I thought that was very interesting that they, you know, what's in a name? There's very much in, in the name. Uh, and so when he says that in the beginning, he says uh, the one who was, meaning the one who was, the one who is, and the one who will be. And think about what it says in Hebrews um, 13, 14, I believe, or, or one of the, I can't remember exactly where it's at, but it says God is the same yesterday, forever, uh, to, yesterday, today, and forever. He's saying the same thing. He is the one who, who was, who is, and who will be forevermore. So there's power in those words, and when they're, when they're said like that, that's what we're saying. We're saying the name of, of God. Did you know that you, every time you introduce yourself, you speak the name of God? Think about it. This this that may may not make sense to you, but when somebody comes up and says, "Well, who are you?" and you say, "Well, I am Wayne. I am Wayne. I am is the name of God, right? I am that I am. I just something to think about every time you introduce yourself, saying, "I'm speaking the name of God before me. God's always before me, right? God's always before Robert. God, when I say I am Robert, God is before Robert." Just think about that. That's a way to worship God, I think, right there. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Did we read that? Probably did. Uh, Was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So when we see Jesus on that day coming in the clouds in His glorified body, He's coming as the great high priest in the Holy of Holies. That's another statement you've got to think about and ponder a little bit. He's coming as the great high priest in the Holy of Holies. What does it say about our body? Is the what? Temple of God, right? And where does, the, where does the Spirit of God reside within us? He resides in the temple of God in the Holy of Holies. 
Wow. When he's coming in great glory and will come in, in, in the clouds, I, I just thinking about that, you know, is he coming with those clouds? Is he coming with the, with the host of heaven, all of that heavenly body of his? And is he coming as the great high priest and we're coming with him as the holy of holies, the body of Christ? That's another thing to think about. As we read, I'm just giving you some things to think about as we go through here and ponder about that. I'll let the pastor iron it out later, but I'll, I'll give you some things to think about. <laughs> and we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is doing. As we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is doing what Jesus promised he would do. He's taking the things of Christ and showing them to us. The Lord's exact words were, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority uh, or whatever he speaks, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's in John 16, 13 through 14. So are we, are we beginning to get a vision of the glorified Christ when we see the things we're, we've talked about so far? So next, next uh, verse says, I, I was in, in the Spirit. John says in verse 10, he says he's in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was moving on John and giving him a panoramic picture in all its reality of sight and sound. Now let's look and see through John's eyes the beginning of this great and grand revealing. When the Lord Jesus descends from heaven to remove his church from the earth, right before chapter 4, or right at chapter 4, he will come with a shout, and the shout will be so distinctive that it will sound like a war trumpet. First Thessalonians tells us, uh, in 4.16, tells us his voice will be like an archangel, but it will be Jesus' own voice. And here's the scripture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. See, John hears the voice, and he turns to see Jesus standing there, saying to him, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. What a thrill it is to see this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. When John saw him, he fainted at his feet as if dead, and Jesus pulled him back on his feet and reassured him that it was him. This is how John describes Jesus. Uh, notice many times how many times John said it was like, because he hardly had words to describe what he saw. He was like the Son of Man, wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. His hair was snow white, and his eyes were like flames. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of raging waters. In his right hand, he had held seven stars. From his mouth came the sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I don't know about y'all, but I probably would have been, I'm sure I would have been the same way if I'd have seen Jesus and knew it was him. I think all of us would probably fall dead because I don't think any of us would be able to stand in the presence like that. Jesus is standing among seven golden lampstands. This reminds us of the tabernacle which had the lampstands with seven branches. These lampstands represent seven separate churches, but they all function the same as lights in the world. We see that in John 8, uh, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, uh, saying, again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And who, he's the light, and the light is reflected through the churches, Right. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. He's telling, his, uh, telling in that message, he said, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your, see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the Lord Jesus is pictured here in these scriptures, in these verses, and I believe that's in, I can't remember which... Uh, 
to look myself. Um, that's in verse the verses that start with verse twelve. If you want to flip back and see that in in, in chapter one, but he's the Lord Jesus is pictured here with the lampstands as our great high priest, his his white robe uh, with his with like a high priest. And you, you can read more about that in Exodus 28. Uh, represents his inherent righteousness. In him is no sin, and he knew no sin. The gold sash around his chest speaks here of, the, of service, not of service, or else it would be girded around his loins, but it, it speaks of strength. He is the strong one who now will judge in truth. As our great high priest, Jesus is currently judging the churches, judging believers, so our light might continue to shine. Scripture does not leave us in the dark about three specific ministries Jesus is doing today. Jesus Christ intercedes for us at the golden altar in heaven today. We can read that in 725 where it says, and what a wonderful part of this ministry for us right now. We need that. But therefore, he is also able to make to us, save to able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. Aren't you so glad that he's making intercession for us? We need that every day. I don't know about you, but I do. Jesus intervenes for us. He steps out of the holy place to the laver where he washes his feet. He washes the feet of those who are his own who confess their sin. Christians have sin, and those sins must be confessed in order to have a fellowship with him. Jesus says, and, and I mean, John wrote this in 1 John 1, 9. He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus, he's girded today with the towel and carries the basins. basin. He is on our side, our advocate, who defends us when Satan accuses us. And, and we'll see that in twelve ten that he is a accuser of the brethren. But Jesus is always intervening us for us. He's at the right hand of God, always intervening for each one of us as we ask for that and confess our sins. And then number three, Jesus Christ inspects us. This ministry isn't so popular. We, uh, we don't like to be inspected, but in Revelation we see him walking, the lampstands examining them. The lamps represent the Holy Spirit. The golden lampstand itself represents Christ, his glory, and his deity. The golden lampstand holds up the lamps, and the lamps in turn reveal the beauty and glory of the lampstand. Even now, the Holy Spirit will make will make uh, Christ and all of his glory, wonder, and beauty real to you that you may see yourself in the light of his presence as he inspects you. In the Old Testament tabernacle, the high priest had the sole oversight of the lampstand. He lit the lamps, poured in the oil, and trimmed the wicks. If one of the lamps began to smoke and didn't give out a good clear light, he snuffed it out. The Lord Jesus Christ is walking among, among the lampstands today in the midst of his church made up of individual believers. As he inspects, he trims the wicks. John 15 tells us he prunes the branches of believers so they might bring forth fruit. He says that in, in uh, John 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So this is one of the reasons, this is just a point here to think about and ponder and maybe highlight if you have a highlighter. One of the reasons he lets us go through certain trials on earth is so that we might get some fruit off our branches, that he might get some fruit off our branches, so that, we, so that he might make our light burn more brightly. He is the one who pours in the oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. If any light comes from a ministry or from your Christian walk, it's from the Holy Spirit. No light originates with us. The Lord Jesus sometimes 
must use a snuffer on a lamp. If a lamp won't give good light and it keeps smoking up the place, the Lord Jesus snuffs it out to replace or trim the wick or add fresh oil. This also may mean a time of being set aside or separated or out of fellowship or as a time of trial or testing. You know, all, not all trial and testing is means you're out of fellowship with God, but there are times when you are uh, out of fellowship with God and your light is not shining so bright. And that's sometimes when, when God's got to make the trimming. Jesus has got to make the trim on your wick and get it to burning brighter. And uh, that's the times when you repent. That's the times when you come back and uh, recommit your life and, and get back, get, get relit. Maybe you get baptized in the Holy Spirit once again. That, who knows? But there's times that happens. Jesus Christ's appearance to John with white hair and eyes of fire speaks of his eternal existence. Um, he is the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7, 9 says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels a burning fire. And you'll, you'll notice as you go back, and if you've read, like I asked you to read Daniel and uh, Revelation as companion books, you'll see so many, much of that uh, symbolism represented in both books, and you can use those to help interpret uh, what's going on and what's, what are we seeing here. His penetrating eyesight and eyewitness uh, speaks of his total knowledge of the life of the church. He knows all about us, all about our churches, for good and for bad. And so it says his feet, like fine brass, represents his judgment. Uh, the brass or brazen altar outside the wilderness tabernacle proper, proper represents the Christ's work down on the cross. You remember when we talked about that, if you were in the, in the study about the wilderness tabernacle, bronze represented, always represents judgment. And there he bore our uh, judgment for sin, and now he judges his own. Human nature rebels against judgment being passed on it. Instead, we're happy just to have a few little rules to go by. That's why Jesus' Jesus' work of inspection is largely ignored by the church. He judges the church. He doesn't flatter. He doesn't ignore what he sees or shuts his eyes to sin. He, his constant charge and command to his own is repent. Turn around or I will remove your lampstand. We'll see that in, uh, when we're talking about the churches in, in starting in chapter 2. The church through the ages has always squirmed under this indictment because we've lost sight of the righteous Christ or we have made up our own rules of what a righteous church is. I think a lot of people have made their rules, and we see so many things going on today that uh, they have a whole separate idea of what a righteous church really is. The voice that John heard is the same voice that called our universe into existence. That voice will raise his own from the grave. That voice will take his own out of the word to be with him. That voice roars like raging waters and is the ultimate voice of authority. All of these images of Jesus add to the picture of Jesus as our great high priest. Inspecting and judging his church, the Spirit of God will help you see Jesus in all of his beauty and glory. Jesus explains, as for the mystery of the seven stars and the seven lampstands in verse 20, uh, you can refer to that back on the first page, but a mystery in Scripture means a sacred secret, that which has not been revealed before. So whenever John uses symbols, he helps us understand what they mean. Otherwise, he is not using symbolic language but talks about literal things. <clears throat> now, what is that in Jesus' right hand? The seven stars means he's in, he controls this universe. Now, Jesus reveals that the seven stars are ma messengers or angels. The, the seven lampstands are the seven churches of Asia, Asia, as we shall see in chapter 2, and then in turn, 
These represent the church as a whole. The church is the body of uh, Christ. The stars represent authority. In Jude 1.13, apostates are called wandering stars. The word angel literally means messenger and may either be human or angelic beings. It could refer to a messenger of the angelic host or, a, or uh, of heaven or to a ruler or a teacher or a pastor of a congregation on earth. That's a, probably got to be a pretty sometimes uneasy position to be in, I would imagine. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, representing his word, verse 16, by which Jesus judges today. Recall what it says in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. His powerful word is sharp as a surgeon's scalpel, cutting through everything, whether doubt or defense, and lays us open to listen and obey. Nothing is, and no one is unyielding to God's word. We can't get away from it no matter what. <clears throat> and it says in verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. If you ever tried to look at the sun, you can't. Do you think you can, would be able to look at the creator who made the sun, the one who is the glorified Christ? This is how he is. John is the only one who has seen the glorified Christ. But you might ask, didn't Paul see Christ on the road to Damascus? No. He saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun. It says that in Acts 26, 13, where he says, where he was explaining that or giving his testimony. At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. So, so Paul couldn't have seen Christ in all of his glory, but he knew he was there. The brightness even blinded Paul for a few days. Therefore, John was the first to see the glorified Christ here in Revelation. And when John saw this Jesus, he fell at his feet as if dead. See, John is the disciple who had an easy familiarity with Jesus Christ on earth. He's the one who reclined at his side in, in the upper room. John was so close to Lord Jesus, he didn't even mind rebuking him on occasion. But when he saw the glorified Christ, he didn't approach him or even try to begin a conversation. Matter of fact, he said that, I believe it's in John, where he says, the one who Jesus loved. He called himself the one who Jesus loved. He was that familiar with him. He fell at his feet as, as if dead. John was paralyzed by this vision of Jesus. He's the glorified Christ. Well, wait a second, the vision of Jesus. Just imagine what it would be like for us. We won't, preach, we won't approach him in a familiar way. He's not our buddy. He's the glorified Christ. Just keep in mind, keep the main thing. Remember that the main thing is the main thing is to remain the main thing, right? He is Jesus glorified. Yet listen to the marvelous thing John said, says to John. He says, do not be afraid. This is deity addressing humanity. And when he gives, then, then he gives four reasons why we shouldn't fear. First, he says, I am the first and the last. This speaks of his deity. That's what the things we were talking about, uh, the, the first declaration he made. He said, I am the first and the last. Uh, he came out of eternity, and he moves into eternity. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The word everlasting means from vanishing point in the past to the vanishing point in the future. He is God. He is first because there is none, there were none before him, and he is last for there are none to follow him. And then number two, he says, I am he who lives and was dead. This speaks of his redemptive death and resurrection. We are guilty, of course, but Jesus asked, who's going to condemn you? I'm not. 
He says, uh, Paul wrote in Romans 8, 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he finishes, it says in 8.34 of the same book, he says, who is he who condemns? He, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also written, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He's not saying right here, it's not as it might read, you might say, well, who is it who condemns? He's not answering the question with, it is Christ, but he's all what he's just saying is, there's no one there to condemn because it's Christ who died. And furthermore, he's also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, because we have no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Just want to get, make sure you get that clear. You confess you're a great sinner, but when Christ died for you and then rose from the dead, he rose to show you are forgiven and you're going to heaven someday. Even now, he's at the right hand of God praying for you. And then number three says, I am alive forevermore. He's alive today, not only judging, but also interceding for us. How much do we need that? And number four, I had the keys of Hades and, and of death. The keys speak of Jesus' authority and power over death and the grave because of his own death and resurrection. Hades, Greek for the unseen world, refers to the grave where the body is laid or to the place where the spirit goes. Jesus holds the keys of death and can relieve us of the terrible fear of death. And we'll see in the end where death and Hades, they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. And what a great day that will be. Then Jesus says, then directs John in the chronological order, the past, present, and future in the vision of how he, he should record what he sees. As we're winding up on, on chapter 1, he says, and we kind of covered this before, before, but he says, write these things which you've seen. So, so far, John has only seen the glorified Christ, and that is right. And that is right, since the glorified Christ is the subject of the book. The horsemen and the bowls of wrath and the beast, they're just passing through. Fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus. He is the one who was and who is and who will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then number two, he says, then write the things which are. And this refers to the church in chapters two and three. And we'll get into that in the next lessons or two, a couple of lessons. And then finally, when we get to verse four, I mean chapter four, uh, we'll see finally write about the things which will take place after this. This is the program of Jesus that Jesus will uh, of Jesus Christ that will take place on the earth after the church leaves, and and we'll see that in chapters four uh, through twenty two, and that's the order we'll use as we continue to explore this amazing vision, this revelation of the glorious Christ. Are y'all getting a feel for it? Are you getting anything out of it? It's a lot, but I mean it's a lot to cover. But co- I, I encourage you always, like I said, go back and read it and do your own Bible study. Go read your footnotes. Do your cross-references. You'll be amazed at how much information there is in that book. So, glad you all were here tonight. Well, we want to thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We pray that you heard from God and that this message was for you. If you haven't already, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. It helps us reach more people with this message. Arena of Life takes pride in connecting to God, to church, and to people. And we want to connect with you. So don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms, to check out our website, arenaoflifechurch.org, and to download the Church Center app and to choose Arena of Life as your church. And a special thanks to those who make a difference by giving generously. You help us change lives and produce weekly content like this that reaches the world. 
If you're interested in partnering with us, you can give by clicking the link in our bio through the website arenaoflifechurch.org or through the Church Center app. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.